Open up to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 2, really actually the very last verse in chapter 1. If you need a Bible, there's some scattered around uh, under the chairs in front of you. And you'll find this part of Jonah, Jonah chapter 2, on page uh, 922 in those Bibles. 922. And in just a moment, we will read this. As you're flipping there, just a question. Where do you turn in distress when you are in despair? Where do you go? Life gets hard. Maybe it's a consequence of your own actions. Maybe it's something that's external and brought to you. Maybe you can't even identify it. You just feel down and in despair. And if somebody asks you why, you say, I don't know, but I just, I just am right now. Where do you go? Is it to entertainment and distraction? You know, another click of Netflix, and the, the next episode comes, and the next episode comes, and finally Netflix says, do you want to keep watching? And you just say, yes, Netflix, I want to keep watching. And it just keeps rolling. You know, is it entertainment? Is it another group of friends? Is it endless scrolling on your phone? Uh, not because you're interested in what's there, but just to distract you. Is it to food and to alcohol? Sweet carbs that fill your tummy. Just enough to drink to help you to forget whatever's on your mind. In Jonah chapter 2, we find a portrait of a man in despair and in distress. And in this portrait, in this example, we see an example for what we can do in our distress, in our despair. It's not an exhaustive chapter. In fact, it's a very short chapter. And so... So there might be other things on kind of a list of what you should do that would be helpful. They're, they're, life is complicated. Despair is complicated. There might be times that you need counsel. You need to see a doctor. You need friends who hold you up. You need exercise. On and on and on. This isn't an exhaustive list. But as kind of a first step, what is the critical first step, the first course of action when we're in despair? What do we do? I think we see it in this passage. Let's go ahead and read it now, starting in verse 17 of chapter 1, and then we'll read to the end of chapter 2. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I cried for help from the depths of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pits, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving, that which I have vowed I will pay, salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. 
see this really in, in three parts. And the first part is this unusual setting that he finds him in. He is praying here from this, we could say it's an unusual location. For some, honestly, this is sort of where they check out of this story. Jonah is swallowed up uh, by what this translation says is a fish. Uh, the word is more general. It means sea creature. It could be a fish. It could be a whale. It could all fit within that kind of Hebrew word. But, but that's kind of like, they're like, that's it. This seems like a fairy tale. This seems unbelievable. And they don't want to hear anymore. And so I just want to briefly speak to that. Uh, certainly there are stories, anecdotal, of people being swallowed by large fish, maybe a whale, and, and spit out and surviving. There are studies about how much air is available inside and how long could a person live. And, and, and so all of that, it does sort of make it plausible. But I don't know that that's the best route for us to go. If God can do these other miracles we see in Scripture, why could he not do this? If God can, can split the water at the Red Sea, meaning he's rolling back gravity in that place at that time, if he can heal the blind, meaning depending on why they're blind, is he reconnecting neurons? Is he refashioning a retina? If he can raise Jesus from the dead, reinvigorating every cell in his body, kickstarting the synapses in his brain, could he not do this? Of course he could. Of course he could. I think we recognize that it's unusual. This is not like the strategy for when you're out on a boat. Like, honey, I... I don't need a life jacket. I read Jonah this morning, right? I'm good. God will take care of me. No, it's, it's the very unusualness of it that makes this stand out. This is not the norm. But Jesus himself described this as, as real. In Matthew chapter 12, the passage we'll, we'll talk about even later in our series, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 to 40, in talking about his own death and resurrection to come, he points to this story of Jonah. Says, he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the sea, or in the heart of the earth. This part that's all in caps is how this translation says this is coming from the Old Testament. And, and Jesus speaks of Jonah and this incident as real, as real as his own resurrection, as his own buried in the tomb and rose from the dead, as, as real as that would be. And so we take Jesus at his words there. But, but what I want to say is don't get too distracted. Even if you kind of still have a question there, don't get too distracted from that. Because the point of this passage isn't, wow, look at this great fish. But, but look at God. And, and look at what God does here. And what God does to rescue Jonah in the midst of this. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan puts it this way. Men have been looking so hard at the great fish, they have failed to see the great God. So this section begins here with him praying from this unique location. And it'll bounce back and forth between kind of him when he was in the water and, and him kind of in the belly of this sea creature. I want you to notice that he was not, not merely calling out to God, not merely praying, say, after he's rescued, um, but while in distress. Verse 2, he says, I called out of my distress to the Lord. In the midst of this distress, in the water, in the fish, he is calling out to God. It mirrors, the language here mirrors Psalm 18, verses 3 to 6. You can 
read it later on your own if you would like, but Psalm 18, 3 to 6 talks about snares of death confronting me. And in my distress, I called upon the Lord. I cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple. Similar language here to Jonah too. But, but I want you to think about, and I think this is really important, why is Jonah in distress? Not what is his distress. That's obvious, right? Like he's drowning. That's distressing. He's swallowed up by a fish, also distressing. Not, not what is going on, but why does he find himself in that situation? It's his own fault. Right? He, he ought to have obeyed the Lord and gone to Nineveh in chapter 1. He did not. He rebelled. And even then, perhaps he could have said, as the sailors are about to throw him overboard, just take me to shore, I'll obey the Lord and go. He didn't. He was thrown overboard. He's in distress because of his own choices. And yet, he still cried out to God. It would be easy for him to conclude, God doesn't want to hear from me. This is my fault. I'm miserable. I'm drowning. Everything smells like fish. This is awful. And, and it's my fault. Why would God want to hear from me? That would be a natural conclusion, but he doesn't. He says, I, I, I remembered the Lord. I cried to him in my distress. The point of that is you might be tempted to think that sometimes. Your, your life might be in distress. And you look at it honestly in a moment of clarity and you say, this is my fault. I cheated on my spouse. I, I, I lied at work and I lost my job. I, I gossiped about a friend and that friendship has been strained. And on and on and on. And you're in despair and it's your fault. And you think, why would God want to hear from me? But he does. And Jonah here is an example of this. In his distress, he cries to the Lord, even though the distress is of his own making. Switches then to describing his descent to the point of death. It's rich, it's profound, it's poetic. And I want you to notice a few things here. Put your eyes on verse 3. It says, For you had cast me into, cast me into the deep. Who cast him into the water? Well, in chapter 1, it's the sailors. They, they, they don't want to. They, in fact, they try to see, can we, can we row to shore? Is there another way? And they eventually conclude they can't, and they reluctantly throw him overboard. But it was their hands on his body throwing him in. And yet here he says, Lord, you cast me into the sea. He's there. He's not being contradictory. He's recognizing the sailors were only the secondary cause. The primary cause was God himself hurling him into the sea. And in fact, I would say this is the language of a repentant person. He could have said, those rotten sailors, right? They threw me into the water. He could have even been more complaining about this to God. But instead, he recognizes God's hand. Just like there's a turning point when somebody stops blaming their coworkers, they stop blaming their spouse, they stop blaming others, even for the painful consequences they're experiencing as a result of their sin, and they... They recognize, God, you, you have allowed this to come. That's the mark of a repentant person often. What he goes on to describe is a, is a near-death experience. I want you to catch this. Verse 3 says, it's into the heart of the sea. The current engulfed me. Your breakers and billows passed over me. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Maybe it's in the ocean, maybe it's in the river, where the current or the waves are far stronger than you pictured and you think you're swimming, and then suddenly you're getting pulled out, and there's a moment where you think, I don't know if I'm going to make it. 
It's a, it's a scary thought. And that's what he's describing here. He says, your, your current engulfed me. These waves were crashing over me. Verse 5, water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. The end of verse 5, I think, is particularly vivid. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I don't think that's symbolic weeds. I think those are weeds, seaweeds, wrapping him up as he's going. He's picturing himself going down, 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 caught up, down to the roots of the mountain, down to the bars of the, 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 the sea, picturing himself getting, getting trapped down there. What I want you to notice is this is not the way most children's books picture this. And, and probably for good reason, right? Um, but if you think of like children's books, it's things like this. Jonah's Big Fish Adventure, right? Um, or even this one, slightly more realistic. Jonah the Runaway Prophet. J- Jonah's going from the boat right into the mouth of the, the sea creature. And, and I don't think that's what this portrays. It's not like the sailors threw him overboard and they're like, wow, he just got swallowed, right? It, he, it pictures him in the water, drowning, sinking, washing over him, even seaweed wrapped around him. It, it's a point of despair. But, verse 6, you have brought my li- up my life from the pit. It's at this lowest moment, very literally the lowest moment. He's down deep in the ocean, the Lord rescues him, and he remembers the Lord. And so the rest of this chapter we'll turn to in a moment of, of what he remembers and what is so important for us to remember. But, but just note that, what is so common true for people, that it's at that lowest ebb in their life that often God meets them. Whether they're at that lowest ebb in their life because of external circumstances and they're despairing, or even from their own choices. It's often at that low point that the Lord meets them. You can think of Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you would know her name. Uh, she was paralyzed in a diving accident when she was a teenager. So those of you in high school, imagine you're, you're swimming with your friends and you dive in and you hit your head and you're, and you're paralyzed from the rest, for the rest of your life. And she describes lying in a hospital bed, grip, grappling with that reality. And it's in that low point where the Lord meets her. Comes to trust in Christ. And now for probably three decades, she's had a significant ministry to people who are suffering. Uh, you think of uh, Chuck Colson. Some of you might know his name. Um, Chuck Colson was 37 years old. He was a former Marine. He was a lawyer. And at 37 years old, which is four years younger than me, he was special counsel to the president. Aren't those the kind of things that like, make you feel like you're not accomplishing something in life, right? When somebody's younger than you and, at least from a certain perspective, has accomplished far more. He's special counsel to the president, uh, but the president was Richard Nixon, if you're not familiar with this. And Colson ended up helping Nixon get reelected, but was caught up in the whole Watergate scandal and was, in many ways, uh, one person described him as the evil genius of an evil administration. He was a hard man and a driven man. And at the peak of this success, he started to fill kind of the emptiness and loneliness even of that. And then all this started to unravel. And it was coming out in the media. And his name and other names were getting thrown around. And, and before, though, the 
he was even sentenced, which would eventually end up being seven months in jail for the role. But between the, the crime and the sentencing, he came to know Christ. And that story is one uh, of a friend of his, who was a CEO of a major corporation, called him up one night and asked if he could come over. And he came over and he read to him a portion from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. It was a portion on pride. And Colson describes how he was just cut to the core as he realized his own pride. And in that moment, he said, I, I surrendered to the Lord. And his own words were, he said, I'm, I'm yours. Whatever that means. As he was eventually sentenced to prison, before he goes to prison, there's a video of a press conference that he does where he says, I have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ and I can serve him in prison or out of prison. And he ended up doing just that for seven months in prison, ministering to the other prisoners, and then starting a prison fellowship, and for three decades, ministering to other prisoners, almost four decades, actually. But it was in that low point that the Lord met him. It's in Jonah's low point, here where the Lord meets him. And what he recognizes is that salvation is from the Lord. That's the key pivot of this passage in verse 6, the second half. But... You have brought up my life from the pit, O oh Lord, my God. This is rescue by God. He says, I was fainting away. He's drowning. Fainting away, he's, he's drowning. And it says he remembered. I remembered the Lord. That, that's what I would want, in particular, kind of young men and women. So middle school, high school, college, if that's you, I want you to really listen for a moment here. That, that we would want you, if you wander some point in your life, and we don't want you to wander. We don't want you to experience the consequences that come from kind of disregarding God's ways and broken relationships and shattered life and, and various things. We don't want you to wander. But if you do, and in the midst of that, you're in despair, and you, like, come to your senses, your relationship's shattered. You know, you shouldn't have been in any ways, but it's shattered and you're in despair. You're, you're in prison. You're shaking off a hangover. Whatever it is, and you're like, what am I doing? Remember the Lord in that moment. That's what Jonah does here. He says, I, I remembered the Lord. I, I think the temptation could be, I've blown it. My, my parents warned me. Youth group warned me. And I've done this anyways, and I've blown it. God doesn't want to hear from me. He does remember the Lord. In that moment, he says, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you. Into your holy temple. You might wonder, why is the temple brought up here? He is far from the temple. He's down deep in the water. He's inside of a sea creature. Why is he talking about the temple? It's a picture of God's, God's mercy. It's, the Lord fills the heavens and the earth, of course, but he, there's a presence of the Lord at this time in a particular way in the temple, and it's at the temple where God's mercy and justice so clearly come together. You think of even the, the mercy seat that's described in Exodus 25, 21 to 22, where the Lord giving instructions. He says, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. So you have this box called the ark, where the Ten Commandments and other things are, are put in. It's God's law. That's God's holy standard. That's what we're called to keep. And yet on top of that is this mercy seat. And it's this mercy seat. He says, there I will meet with you. 
And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, that's these angelic statues on the side, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. And this mercy seat ends up being this pivotal, pivotal like bringing together of God's mercy and justice, where on the day of atonement, the, the priest sacrifices an animal and he takes the blood and he sprinkles it on the mercy seat. That's a picture of God's mercy to sinners. Mercy of, on sinners who have violated the very commands underneath the mercy seat. And so what somebody seeing that, hearing that, knowing that, comes away with, there would be three truths. I'm a sinner against the holy God. I cannot save myself. I must have a substitute sacrificed for me. And that's echoed out into the very work of Christ comes as a substitute for sinners. So not a, not a goat, not a bull that's sacrificed for us, but Jesus himself. He looks to the temple. We would look to the cross as this great picture of God's mercy. And so what he remembers, look in verse nine, skipping over verse eight for a moment. He says, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving, that which I have vowed I will pace. Looking ahead, Salvation is from the Lord. It's been suggested that if you were to choose one verse or maybe one phrase from the Bible that summarizes all of the Bible, this would be a pretty good choice. Salvation is from the Lord. From beginning to end, that's what it pictures. Our need for salvation, Adam and Eve's sin that echoes down to all of our sin until the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation when that's all rolled back our need for salvation, but our inability to save ourselves. What we get in the Bible is story after story of God needing to come in and rescue. Think of Israel in Egypt. They're caught in slavery. They cannot get themselves out, and God rescues. Salvation is from the Lord. Think of countless times throughout the Old Testament where a, a stronger, superior army is against them, and the Lord rescues. We've got the whole sacrificial system that is picturing the way that salvation is from the Lord. And then we have Jesus himself coming down in the incarnation as the way and the truth and the life. And then now drawing people to himself, breathing new life into them, holding them tight until the day they are with him. It all declares salvation is from the Lord. It is not 90% from the Lord and 10% from us. It is from the Lord. He's the one who saves. Going back to verse eight, you get the contrast. I think this is one where the ESV actually words it a little bit more clearly. Jonah 2.8 and the ESV goes like this. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Salvation is from the Lord and only from the Lord. If we go to any other idol, which this original audience would have been written to Jewish people, tempted to go to the idols of the nations around them, but it is true today. Anything else we go to to save us we forsake our hope of steadfast love because, because an idol cannot save. Only God can save. Salvation is from the Lord. The steadfast love is his loyal love. And he says we are forsaking it if we go to anything else. So it ends in verse 10. It says, The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Also a scene not depicted in children's books, right? It will probably not be acted out in vacation Bible school this week. Um, it would be great if this was the key turning point in the book and Jonah never does wrong again. 
Like if it's like a V, right? Like down, 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 he repents, and it's nothing but blue skies and obedience from here on out. Is that what happens? If you've read ahead, you know that's not what happens. There's a repentance. There's obedience in chapter 3. He goes to Nineveh. He takes the message. And then in chapter 4, he gets mad at God. He sulks. He complains. End of book. And we're left to kind of wonder, what happens next? Does, does, he, does he repent again? Does he come to his senses? We don't know. But this is often what our life is like as well. It's not like we're in despair, we repent, and it's nothing but growth from then on. It's often more like a squiggly line, right? Where we grow, we repent, we mess up again, we turn back to the Lord, grow. Maybe the, maybe the troughs aren't quite as deep and quite as long, but it's this up and down until the day we're with the Lord. And I think Jonah pictures that as well. There's hope. There's hope in this book. And I want to give you three points, three, three ways in which Jonah offers hope. The first is, you can cry to God in the middle of distress, even if it's your fault. And that's a point I really want you to get. Even if it's your fault, you are reaping what you've sown. You got involved in a relationship you should not have. You did something with your taxes you should not have. You yelled and screamed at somebody, and now that relationship is fractured. On and on and on. It's your fault, and you know it. Maybe not 100% your fault, but your fault. Cry out to God in the middle of that distress. He wants to hear from you even then. You need to, in that crying out, acknowledge what you've done and be honest about that. But, but you're crying out even then. Second, or letter B, your growth will probably not be a straight line of progress, as I just mentioned. You will probably be more like Jonah. Down, up, down, up. And, and don't let that discourage you as well. It, every time, turn, turn, turn to the Lord. And just kind of recognize that as the reality. And as long as we're dealing with sin that's within us. Until we go to be with him one day. And then third, salvation is, is from the Lord. It's the key line in this book. Perhaps the key line in the entire Bible. Salvation is from the Lord. Your salvation is, is from the Lord. Meaning if you are in heaven one day, it is because the Lord saved you. Not because kind of he, he did some and you did some. Not because you were a good enough person. Not because you were a better person than the one next to you. It's because the Lord saved you. He took your sin, took it upon himself on the cross. No longer the temple where there's an animal that's a sacrifice, but Jesus himself as the great sacrifice. Jesus, fully God and fully man, dying. Your sin going to him. His righteousness given to you so you are forgiven fully. You trust in him. You believe in him. You are saved. It is from the Lord. Your salvation is from the Lord. Another application of this, because it's all through Jonah. Jonah is a book about how he needs to go take this message to somebody else and he doesn't want to. And so another part of this is your neighbor's salvation is from the Lord. Your coworkers, your friends, your child, your uncle, it's from the Lord. And yet, just like Jonah needed to go to Nineveh, God could have done it another way, but he wanted Jonah to go, so you have an opportunity to go, to go to somebody. In one sense, the pressure's off because salvation is from the Lord. He's the one who saves. You, you cannot. 
But the privilege is on you to be able to go. So look for ways to invest. You think of it simply invest, engage, explain, and invite. Invest relationally in somebody who doesn't know Christ. Don't, don't remain in a bubble of just other Christians. Invest relationally, not like as a project, not just to try to get them to this point, but because you care about them, because God cares about them. Invest. Engage. Look for ways to talk about spiritual things. Ask them what they think about the Supreme Court decision this week or you know, any number of other things that could just get you talking about significant issues. Invest, engage, explain as you have an opportunity to explain the gospel. And invite. Maybe that's invite them to read the Bible with you and do a little study. Maybe it's invite them to bring their kids to vacation Bible school or to come to church with you sometime or something. Not that just getting them to a place is the end goal, but it just allows you to continue that conversation. Invest, engage, explain, and invite. Let's pray.